And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And uh, now is my time. Favorite, My favorite part of the show. Get to do an interview. And I told you we had another good one on the deck. Uh, and I've been wanting to have this guy on for quite a while. Just because he's doing some... He's a brilliant guy. He's done a ton of managed money in pretty much every way you possibly could. Um, fascinating background and doing great work now. And... Um, has a lot of insight. So without further ado, I want to uh, welcome Mike Green to the show. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Zach, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, before we even get started, you've been with Simplify now. Have you been with them for about a year? Is that is that right? Uh, it's it's about a year and a half, actually. So okay. I joined in uh, March, April of 2021. The firm was founded in September of 2020. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And you guys, give us a brief synopsis of right out of the gates, what, what you guys are doing. And, and I was talking to you about this off air. Um, you know, I think people probably see I manage retail money. I think probably you guys probably do both uh, retail and, and, and some non-retail stuff. But um, people see those as competing things. I don't. I think you guys are doing great work. And tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing at Simplify uh, and what kind of products you have to offer people and why you guys think that uh, that they're valuable and, and filling a space that, that really isn't filled in the retail market. Well, so Simplify, as I said, was launched in September of 2020. Um, it is an ETF firm. So we focus on issuing and offering ETFs and we're ambivalent whether our investors are retail, as in you know individuals managing their own accounts or whether they're coming to us through a registered investment advisor, similar to yourself, um, or if they're institutional. And we do ultimately have clients across all three components my background has traditionally been in the institutional space, primarily managing money for either endowments or wealthy individuals. Um, but part of the opportunity that led us to launch Simplify and led me to join Simplify was a change in the rules. And we'll spend an awful lot of time in this discussion talking about the rules of regulated finance. Uh, but a change in the rules that facilitated the introduction of ETFs that had derivative components to them. And so that would include things like an S&P or a U.S. equities with some downside protection expressed through an option overlay um, or tools that allow you to increase your exposure to various types of assets um, through ETFs in a manner that historically would have been very, very difficult. There were two primary rule changes, what's called the ETF rule in September of 2019, that facilitated the filing and application process, made it less onerous on new issuers of ETFs. And then it was referred to as the derivative rule in September of 2020 that laid out very clearly the rules for the use of derivatives within ETFs. Uh, that created the opportunity for someone like myself who has traditionally managed derivative strategies for, again, the institutional space to begin trying to do the same thing within uh, the exchange traded uh, framework. And that opened up a lot of interesting opportunities that I thought was just too good of a, uh, a situation to pass up. It also had the benefit of allowing me to increasingly play a role of sharing some of the concerns I have about the current financial system and, and how it's created and how potentially our solutions or strategies offer solutions to some of those problems. Yeah, well, and it's been interesting to watch um you know, it, it's always tough to know personally, but watching market movements, um, you know, over the last year, over the last two years, 
I, I, I see movements that happen all the time that makes me, you know, go back and, and revisit some of the things I've heard you say about your concerns regarding the market and issues. And um, I feel like we keep seeing examples. You know, you've talked about the lack of liquidity. I look at market movements and mega cap stocks swinging 9, 12% in a day. Um, again, maybe that's false attribution on my part, but I see these kind of movements and I just keep going back to things I've heard you talk about. Do you think we're starting to see, I mean, well, I think we've been seeing them for a while, but do you attribute, you, you've talked about liquidity concerns in the market, uh, especially in the equity space. Do you think that that is playing into some of these exacerbated moves we're seeing right now? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. Um, you know, the concerns that I have are largely around um, two separate components. One is the explosive growth of strategies that systematically buy securities, right? That can be, um, you know, an S&P 500 index fund, for example. Um, it could be a, a fund that is dedicated to buying, you know, uh, disruptive technology stocks and doing so in a manner that simply labels them by their underlying tickers. And then when money goes in or goes out of those vehicles, the manager is forced to behave in a certain way. Um, that creates a, a level of what's called inelasticity, right? It's a behavior in which the considerations, the thoughtful considerations of is this good news or is this bad news for this individual security, where the earnings reports positive or negative, are increasingly taking a backseat to the decisions that are being made by third, you know, uh, removed investors who are simply saying, I want to plow money into a technology fund, or I want to plow money into an energy fund, or I want to plow money into the S&P 500. And there's a particular amount of ire that I have reserved for strategies like target date funds, in which the only question that's ever asked is, one, are you employed so you can continue to contribute? And two, when do you plan to retire? Because with those two components, we can decide every possible conclusion that needs to be made about your investment behavior. That simply feels absurd to me. And the more we crowd into these strategies, the more we're creating conditions under which there is no thoughtful consideration of the facts at hand, leading to markets becoming more efficient and more capable of absorbing information, they actually increasingly become the economic term is inelastic, meaning small changes in supply and demand cause extreme changes in prices. I think we saw that, you know, today is November 11th, Friday, November 11th. I think we saw that very clearly yesterday on November 10th, in which the S&P moved in a nearly unprecedented upwards fashion on a very small piece of information about a CPI beat. Yeah, yeah, a very moderate CPI beat too as well. I, I love, I don't think I've had, I don't think I've heard you talk directly about target date funds, but this is something that I've been pounding the table on too. Um, <clears throat> I had the, I guess, coincidence or, or luck or, or bad luck or whatever you want to call it. I was at, beginning of my career, I was at Russell Investments uh, here in the Seattle, Washington area. And I was on the team that was working on developing these target date and target portfolio series portfolios. And one of the things I've tried to tell people is, guys, these are not investments that were designed to give you good results. These were investments designed to gather more fees for these companies. And, and they designed them in such a way that they could make them the default option as opposed to cash in the plan, right? And, um, it, you know, it, they're just it, it, seeing the proliferation of those funds and so many people having so much confidence in these funds. 
Um, you know, and then you look at the fees inside of them. I just, uh, it's good to hear somebody else talk about that. Cause I've pounded the table over and over on those things. Um, any, any additional, I, I, again, I haven't heard you speak to these, but any additional ire that you have that, that regarding particulars around these target date, target portfolio type funds that don't just involve the lack of thought and, or, or the expense, is there any other issues that I'm overlooking? Oh, there's, I mean, there's so many underlying issues associated with these components, everything ranging from antitrust components to the appropriateness of the investments. Um, you, you know, the reason why target date funds were created, you actually hit exactly the issue. They are um, typically the what's referred to as the qualified default investment alternative within a 401k plan. And so um, beginning in 2006, we changed the rules around 401ks. This was part of the whole nudge and the ownership society type dynamics that you probably remember from that time period in the aftermath of the dot-com crisis. But it was, the idea was very straightforward. A lot of people, when they get a job, would not choose to participate in one of the most advantageous savings tools available to us, a 401k that allows you on a tax-deferred basis to withhold a portion of your income and invest it in a tax deferred, right? Again, not tax free, but a pre-tax basis until you begin to retire when theoretically you're withdrawing those funds when you have a lower tax rate, right? Because your income should theoretically be lower. Right. Um, the challenge that we had was relatively low participation. So many people failed to take advantage of these opportunities. Incentives were created for increasing the employer match to drive people into it. And we also changed the rules on the system so that they became opt out, meaning you had to choose not to participate rather than opt in. Right. So rather than wait for people to say, yes, I do want to do this, it became a unless you tell us otherwise, we're going to assume that you want to do this. The second challenge that, that they tried to address with target date funds that they were trying to address is what you're referring to is this qualified default investment alternative. Many people, when faced with all the choices associated with investing in their 401k, would either ignore them and simply stick it in cash or um, would become you know, effectively uh, crazy and, and go out and buy whatever the best performing last thing was, right? Yeah. So the introduction of a QDIA, the Qualified Default Investment Alternative, was originally designed to address this by saying, okay, we're going to put you into the market, but we're going to put you into a relatively conservative product, right? So initially, these things became, um, a lot of the selections would go to balanced funds, right? Things like 60-40 funds that had a constant mix between bonds and equities, Um Target date funds were created in 2003. They didn't exist before that. And in 2012, target date funds became the default QDIA for almost all 401ks. And exactly as you highlighted, that was due to lobbying within the industry rather than everyone universally coming to the conclusion that this is a great idea. Target date funds do something that most of your listeners are going to be very familiar with. But they automatically adjust your allocations between bonds and equities, both domestic and international in most situations, you know, by managing a glide path over time. So when you're young, you're heavily invested in equities, primarily U.S. equities with a smattering of international equities. And as you age, you move into bonds. Um, the idea behind this is very straightforward, right? It's the 110 minus your age sort of phenomenon. It's a recognition that, you know, you should own more risk or have more risk at hand when you're younger Versus when you're older, 
and the general theory is is you know at least somewhat sound right now things that aren't included into any of the variations are what are the valuations of equities is there an expected forward return that's meaningfully different from any period in time same thing is true for the bonds etc instead we're effectively relying on the market to deliver a historically expected return that vacillates over time right um so it all feels very sound until you recognize that when everybody starts doing the same thing, <laughs> and that's really where the issue becomes, because 401ks are now the dominant form of savings, 401ks and IRAs are now the dominant form of savings. We've changed the rules over the years so that increasingly corporations that are offering 401ks have become liable for the choices that are offered to their employees if they offer anything other than the cheapest, safest alternatives, both in terms of generating market-style returns, right? So the S&P 500 or a, a uh, total market fund, the corporation actually becomes liable to its employees, right? Both for the excess fees and potentially for the underperformance. So now you've created a really interesting challenge. And by the way, there's a cottage industry of lawyers that go out and sue corporations offering 401k plans, which they all want to offer as a benefit to their employees. The most extreme version of that was Fidelity Investments was sued in a class action lawsuit by its employees for offering Fidelity funds in its retirement vehicles, <laughs> right? Um, they had to settle, I believe they settled for about $700 million in a class action lawsuit brought by their own employees for offering their own products in their own 401k system. Wow. Um, pretty outrageous when you really think about it, right? <laughs> um, so that dynamic has effectively meant that the offering of choices within a 401k is increasingly about the liability management for the corporation. The selections are made by the human resource manager at the at most levels. At the extreme level, they might be uh, advised by the CFO, but for the most part, they're picking a standard menu. The selection of whose target date funds to issue is largely similar to the dynamic of medical sales, right? You know, an attractive young man or young woman goes and offers to take the HR manager out to dinners and lunches, et cetera, all of which is, you know, information exchange and, and creates all of these components. But fundamentally, what happens with the target date fund is that you then make the business completely uncompetitive, right? So once a company decides that they're going to offer, say, Vanguard target date funds, there's really no reason to ever review that. And there's also no mechanism for other managers to meaningfully compete for a share of those assets. Right now, I sound like your typical active manager complaining about the lack of access and the difficulty associated with growing a business under those constraints. And I fully understand that and acknowledge it. The issue is, is it healthy to have an ecosystem in which last year, for example, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.3 trillion worth of assets went into the system and more than 100% of that went into just Vanguard and BlackRock. Jeez. Jeez. Right. It's not healthy. Right. It's not a healthy ecosystem. And that's where the second part of the work that I've become known for is focused on. What are the implications of those types of, of choices within a regulatory framework? Okay. So, and, and I want to get to that part uh, just because I've, I've, 
hearing hearing you talk multiple times, I've built up quite a list of questions that I wanted to ask you That's regarding funny. that. But um, how one of the hearing you talk about <clears throat> again with my own experience, the proliferation of these target date portfolios, or you know the, all the all the different iterations of them, and then watching things like uh, the new DLL rule coming out, which I'm not sure if you guys have dealt with this, but they're they're pushing the bar higher, making it more and more difficult. There's more steps you have to take to get money out of a 401k. Um, where I'm sitting back looking at it and going. Well, you sh- if you can get money out of a f- and and again, I part of my bias is probably speaking here too, so I I I'll own up to that. But if you can get money out of a four hundred one k with no penalties, not having to pay taxes, you should always do that. Right? <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, you can keep the same funds you have and just drop the administration fee. So it was a bit of a head scratcher for me. Do you think that these rules and these changes in the four hundred one k? are mostly just a product of these big these big companies lobbying Congress? Or what do you think is driving them? Just because, again, I'm seeing several of these new regulations coming out and stepping back and looking. Again, my, my lens is somewhat biased, but I think if you look at it from any way as a rational human being or investor, you realize, wait a second, <clears throat> these regulations aren't helping people. So what do we attribute these to? Well, um, I, I, I do think the most important thing to understand this is that most of the changes that go through are meant, at least on their surface, to offer um, better options to investors. Right. So the introduction of index funds or the emphasis on low cost, the emphasis on delivering tracking and predictable performance, those are all understandable components. Right. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which you are choosing to do that because you're trying to hurt somebody. I do think that there are secondary effects that are created by this. And I have to confess, I'm not familiar with the exact regulations that you're referring to. Um, But broadly speaking, most of the behavior that we see in the industry is a byproduct of various forms of lobbying that on its surface is quite positive for investors, right? So things like postponing required minimum distributions from 401ks, Moving that from 70.5 to 72, shifting um, your eligibility for withdrawal into a Roth IRA, for example, um, or your ability to roll over assets in various forms, take loans against your 401k. Those are all features that, you know, you can understand why it's valuable. There, you should always just be a little cautious, and I think your your skepticism is well placed. That you know somebody is winning in that process, right? So, offering annuities in four hundred one k's do they play an important role? Absolutely, an annuity can be a significant benefit for somebody who is trying to plan for their retirement. Um, you'd be you'd be foolish to think that that's not a good thing to include in the menu of choices. But you'd also be foolish not to think that that didn't happen under intense lobbying from the you know the insurance industry to offer these types of products and take advantage of pre-tax dollars. Um, same thing is true in terms of the desire to keep assets in there longer, right? The vast majority of people really will ultimately need their retirement savings, and that unfortunately becomes increasingly true in a recession, which tends to hit the older population harder in terms of being uh, unemployed. Um, at least in, ter- in terms of their their overall consumption basket, you know. So I, I, I can't turn around and say like I think all these things are bad, but I do think that there is definitely an underlying 
component of lobbying activity. And in terms of the lobbying activity, I mean, I've shared many of my concerns with various forms of regulators, some of whom have come back and said, we very much agree with your concerns. My reaction to that is, of course, well, fantastic. All right, let's start figuring out ways to change this stuff. And the reaction inevitably is somewhere along the lines of, yeah, well, there's really nothing we can do because the regulatory apparatus and lobbying is largely controlled by BlackRock and Vanguard. Right? <laughs> they, they individually uh, contribute more to lobbying activity than the rest of the industry combined. And they also control the Investment Company Institute, which is the lobbying arm of the mutual fund industry. Yeah, they're, they're, they, 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 they swing a big stick. Um, it, well, and, and to your point, <clears throat> I, I think some of these developments are good. I just I see a common thread that they all equal more fees and more money to uh, to the companies providing those funds and those, those those products inside of the you know inside of the plan. And and yeah, I mean, are some of the developments good? Sure, but but you know, when every single one of them equals you know a longer retention of the assets, more fees collected. You know, you just kind of you kind of start to see that ugly underbelly and go, wait a second, right? <laughs> who who are we doing this for? You know, which is nothing new, right? Um, big companies. Well, what, the, what what unfortunately they all contribute to. I mean, almost everything that we're talking about, right? Reducing people's um, propensity to sell assets, reducing people's, uh, increasing people's ability to buy assets in one form or another in a tax advantaged or in a preferred way. They all have. You know, the unintended consequence, I realize that it is not the explicit intended goal, but it has the it, it has the effect of raising assets, assets and raising asset valuations because people have a harder time selling or less incentive to sell and more incentives to buy. You can just play that out in your head, which that should do to asset valuations. It increases them as people go into the system. The challenge that I'm really concerned about is as we face the demographic challenges of a retiring baby boomer generation, and we increasingly push assets into vehicles that have this highly inelastic function, right? No longer saying, is it a good idea to buy these things? Simply saying under the world's simplest algorithm, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. At what valuation? At what price? What assets should I buy? Well, whatever my mandate is, right? There is no consideration for the current state of affairs. And unfortunately, if you run that through simulations, right, where you build agent-based models and you endow them with that type of behavior, what you discover is as the industry grows, as the passive share, as the target date fund share grows, you see valuations rise. And as they try to exit, you enter into conditions under which markets could crash in a nearly unprecedented fashion. Where are we at? And I'm getting out of order here just because I'm fascinated by the topics. Where are we at right now, Mike, regarding the total percentage of assets that are currently in uh, passive vehicles? So this is really one of the more interesting challenges, right? So most people in coming to that to, to that answer will simply add up the share of Vanguard, BlackRock, or they'll compare ETFs and index mutual funds to the overall markets. If you do that, the answer is somewhere in the 17, 18% range. Um, but what that's missing are all the other components, right? So things like separate accounts that are being managed for endowments or institutions that are being run as if it's the S&P 500, 
right, or futures contracts that explicitly are what are referred to as total return swaps, or even what are called unregistered mutual funds, which is actually the fastest growing area of the space, what's, what's referred to as commingled, or I'm sorry, collective investment trusts, CITs. These are all very, very low cost ways of accessing financial markets for many of these types of products. And they're increasingly, all the low cost solutions are going to passive strategies. So um, I was actually the adjudicant on an academic paper, meaning I you know, basically criticized the paper um, in 20, uh, 2022, early 2022. And one of the professors on the paper had presented this idea that the passive share should be evaluated as kind of 15% based on these dynamics. And I pointed out the error in that and challenged him to, to come back with a more accurate assessment. My number is somewhere around 43%, uh, 43, 44% of the total US market is now managed in a passive or systematically indexed framework. Um, his number came back and said at the absolute minimum as of 2020, so we're now a couple of years past and passive appears to be gaining about 3% a year. Um, at the absolute minimum, his, his conclusion was that 38% of the market as of 2020 was being managed in this fashion. So most of the estimates you see are way too low. I would suggest that we're you know, moving towards that 50% range. And that's an area of particular concern. Again, if you run simulations and you just mechanically think about how that system would work, right? Once you cross 50%, you actually start to change the behavior of the market in a very substantive fashion. Just imagine that you, you know, treat a market as it originally was, right? You walk into a flea market or a Moroccan souk, right? And if you walk into a Moroccan souk, there's lots of carpet sellers, right? You can go to each of the individual carpet sellers, you can negotiate, you can say, hey, this guy was offering me this, you know, your rugs are slightly different. You know, so maybe I'm willing to pay a premium for you, et cetera. But there's a diversity of buyers and sellers that, that makes a market functional and attractive to participants. It allows you to transact within a range that you broadly expect when you enter it. Um, the more that market becomes passive, in other words, the more you take away participants that have discretion, and replace them with participants who can only do things when they receive instructions from outside the market, right? Basically, in end investors who are saying buy or sell based on my individual needs with zero consideration for what's happening inside the market, you begin to raise the inelasticity of the market. They become increasingly what's referred to as discontinuous, meaning prices gap. And we see this in the S&P 500. We see this in the behavior of many of the largest stocks, many of the small stocks that we see out there today, where in an unprecedented manner, you're seeing you know, opening, closing gaps. You go to bed, Apple, you wake up and Apple is 20% lower, right? Or Facebook is 25% lower, or Amazon is 25% lower, or crazily enough, 20% higher, right? Um, that type of behavior is increasingly happening in the markets, and I would largely lay it at the feet of this type of dynamic. The participants themselves have increasingly little flexibility with which to respond to flows. So, and as we, now my guess would be, correct me if I'm wrong, as you cross that event horizon, if you will, that is 50%, would... 
I'm assuming that each incremental percentage you move up from there would would that 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 style or that that type of investment would have exponentially more impact on market pricing. Would that be a, would that be a, a fair assumption? Unfortunately, that's exactly correct. Right, okay. that it becomes an exponential feature. You can just mechanically think about it in the dynamic. Um, you mechanically think about it in the dynamic of you're going into that Moroccan souk to try to, you know, buy or sell a carpet. Um, the more vendors that have no discretion to trade with you, the more effort you're spending basically running around trying to get a transaction, the more willing you are to settle for a price that is significantly mm-hmm. different than what you had when you entered, you had in mind when you entered the market, right? Mm-hmm. Functionally, that's what happens. And as you get further and further through the market with more and more systematic traders um, and more and more of the volume residing with systematic strategies, the bigger the risk that the market behaves in a discontinuous fashion. So um, most people who know me know that one of the, the trades I'm, I'm known for, the events around what are called the inverse VIX ETFs. Yes. Colloquially, you're thinking of XIV. Um, which blew up on February 5th, 2018. Um, I was working for Peter Thiel and had set up trades that had significant bets against that position. The, the, the strategies and recognition around that are functionally identical to what I'm describing here. At that point in time, about two-thirds of the volume in the products that underpin those strategies was explicitly tied to these systematic strategies, right? So if money went in, we knew exactly what they were going to do. If money came out, we knew exactly what they were going to do. And all it required was a day in which enough volume tried to move through the system to cause that to break, right? It became discontinuous. You went to bed, XIV was at $85. You woke up and XIV was at five. And that actually didn't even trade. I I actually owe you a thank you for that one because it was based on your work um, that we were loading up long vol between December and January uh, uh, heading into <laughs> heading into that. So that uh, the Volmageddon was actually a very um, pleasant experience for us. And uh, I, I forgot about that, but I got to tip my cap to you. That was that was your work that that was based on. Um, and I'm reminded of the story that you tell. And if you give us a quick summary it, it was. It reminded me of the scene in The Big Short, where you know Steve Carell's character. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's real name. Uh, Steve Eisman. Yeah, Steve Eisman. That's right. Stands up in the middle of the thing and goes, "No, it's it's zero, right?" Calls him out. Yeah. Will you give us a quick synopsis of that story, real quick? Uh, well, of my story or of his story? Your story. Your story. Oh, okay. you had a similar- so yeah, so um, May 2017, I was speaking at a panel at an equity derivatives conference in Vegas, right? So very similar to the Steve Eisman scene where he goes <laughs> to the mortgage brokers conference. The difference was I was on the stage and he was in the audience. And so I'm on the stage uh, talking about my concerns about this product and the general increase in the selling, the strategies around selling volatility that create many of the feedback loops that we're describing And on the stage, I made the prediction that this product would go to zero on a one-day 4% decline in the S&P 500. Uh, Turned out in the audience was basically the inverse of Steve Eisman, the individual who had created this product and had um, uh, was involved in its its issuance through Credit Suisse. 
Um, and he and I entered into a heated debate in which he believed that it would survive the crash of 87, which just to orient your, your listeners was a single day decline on the magnitude of 20%. Um, my belief was that it would go to zero on a 4% decline in the S&P. Um, you know, our argument became heated enough that people, somebody recorded it surreptitiously, um, and um, which you know is one of those funny things. And and when it did go to zero on a three point nine percent decline in the S and P, so um, either I was conservative and candidly I was conservative, um, or I got ex- incredibly lucky in predicting that number. Um, you know, it was released into the public sphere. And so it's uh, it's floating around out there somewhere that there's a an audio recording of me getting into an argument with the founder of Velocity Shares that this product would indeed go to zero on a 4% decline in the S&P. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was basically, if I'm remembering your work and you talking about it correctly, all you needed, right? I mean, you can look at it, the S&P. I was more focused on the VIX at, at the time. But wasn't it all that needed to happen was the VIX went to 19 and these things were belly up at that point? Yeah, so that was the critical insight, right, is is that it was because it's an inverse product. um, What that means is it does the opposite of what the underlying does. So as volatility is falling and getting lower and lower and lower in this situation, the product that we're talking about here, XIV, was rising and rising and rising, getting higher and higher and higher. But it was creating a condition on which a smaller and smaller move in the actual level of volatility would cause the underlying volatility to double. And in particular, there's a subset of volatility metrics called correlation um, that became the real driver. And so we began to enter into late 2017 with the lowest levels of implied correlation we've ever seen in recorded history. And a lot of my work was around what could cause that to move in the opposite direction, right? What could cause that to rise very rapidly? Um, So this was a perfect example. This is one of these products that ironically, the higher it went in price, it was actually increasing the probability of it going to zero, right? So that is completely at odds with how... um, you know, option theory is supposed to behave around most underlying instruments, right? It's presumed that the higher something goes in price, the further it is from the zero bound, the pricing of options or derivatives around that are set up with this effective cone of possibility, you know, that rises alongside the underlying asset. Um, This is the same thing that Nassim Taleb would have told you in 2007 with the black swan, we don't really know the distribution of future outcomes of these things. The unique situation that existed here was because I recognized this, these mechanics, I was able to create or construct a very different distribution of outcomes, recognizing that it was what's called bimodal, right? So effectively, the higher it went in price, the harder it became for it to go higher in price, the higher the probability of it going lower, dramatically lower in price uh, became. And so, you know, by my math, there was roughly a 95% probability this thing would go to zero over a two year period. The, you know, critical error that I made in that process was it went to zero over the course of six months. So I dramatically (laughs) overpaid for the long, you know, duration of my bet. Um, you know, could have made, you know, five times as much money if I'd done it over a much shorter time period, but that would have been basically gambling with the outcomes. Right. So it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the, uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll take the win as it existed and, um, you know, just emphasize that a lot of the same dynamics exist, whether it's products like Bitcoin or it's products like the S&P. When you have systematic strategies that are involved in driving stuff higher, perversely, that creates its own feedback loops that drive them higher while raising the probability of extreme downward moves. So in the would it be would it be fair and i'm trying to i've got 18 million different things going through my mind right now so i'm trying to sort through them but if the passive so switching back to the passive conversation now if the passive gets too big does the stock market begin to move more with, with a higher correlation to the unemployment rate or like you know just i'm thinking about inputs going into 401k's where what would drive I, what would drive the reverse? What would be that situation if this passive thing keeps going? And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see any telltale signs of it slowing. Um, what what would create the undoing? Because I listening to your work, one, one of the things that I it, it makes perfect sense. It scares the living daylights out of me, especially as an active manager. Um, but it also will lead to this eventual undoing. What, what will cause that at some point? Is, this, is it simply a factor of when, regardless of prices, regardless of valuations, when more money, there's more retirees pulling money out of their funds every month? What, what will cause that type of reaction uh, in markets or in, or in S&P 500 ETFs that we saw in the whole you know, short vol ETFs? What, what, what causes that undoing? Do you know? Well, there's a variety of things that can cause it. Um, the single biggest underlying feature is simply a reversal of the process of people putting money in, right? And it has very non-symmetrical um, dynamics associated with it. Um, just let's, let's play a very, very simple game, right? Um, you are a portfolio manager. You have discretionary ability to hold between zero and 10% cash in your portfolio. And you've got $1,000 um, that you currently hold with 95% of it invested in equities. So you got $50 in cash, 950 of equities, right? Yeah. Um, I decide to come in and buy shares from you, right? And I'm given a mandate that says I can hold no more than 0.1% cash. Right. So yeah. I now have a thousand dollars. You've got a thousand dollars. You have discretion to hold cash. I don't have discretion to hold cash. When I go to buy from you, right, you would look at that and you'd say, OK, you know, he's willing to bid something up. I'm willing to sell it to him. I'll hold some additional cash. Right. So you very rapidly see how the initial introduction of a new player who does not have any capability to hold cash could cause prices to rise and in turn mm. cause active managers to carry more cash, mm. right? Now, perversely, what does that mean in that environment? That means that you're carrying cash drag and you're selling the assets that are being driven up in price, which means definitionally you underperform. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So people see this underperformance, they fire you and hire me. Right now, what happens? More money has less ability to hold cash. More money has less ability to value the option like properties of cash that say, I can use it to buy something without selling something. I can use it to meet a redemption. Right? There's all sorts of value associated with holding cash. 
but because mechanically I'm handing it to a player who doesn't have that option, right? It causes the market to go higher, right? Now, the minute somebody says to me, okay, thanks, Mike, Mr. Passive Manager. I really appreciate you doing better than that terrible Zach, the active manager, right? Performance has gone up a lot. I'm going to take some money out to fund my retirement. Who do I sell to? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm, that's what I've started to wonder. Like, is there a tipping point where enough baby boomers retire to where that starts being, I mean, is that the tipping point do you think? Is it just when we, I think that's, I think that's part of the tipping point, but I think that there's a couple of interesting, you know, hidden secrets here, right? One is that while we talk about passive share, it's not at all what's referred to as homogenous, right? Evenly distributed across generations. Because passive strategies were not well known prior to the 1990s, many of the investors that are hitting retirement today never were exposed to the John Bogle, you know, Vanguard type dynamics. When I entered the industry in 1992, roughly, um, you know, the share that passive strategies had was around one percent. Right today, as I pointed out, it's about 43 percent, 44 percent. Right, so. There's nothing else that describes what's really happened in the industry over the past, frighteningly enough, 30 years now that I've been involved with it, other than the growth of passive, right? Like that's just, that, that is, forget everything else. That is the defining feature. Forget the dot-com bubble, forget, you know, the housing crisis, et cetera. The growth of passive is the single most important thing that has probably happened to our financial markets. Um and that growth is largely happening because the younger generations are running incredibly high share of passive. So those under the age of 40 are about 90 plus percent passive. Some estimates would suggest they're as high as 94% under the age of 35, right? And those over the age of 60 or 65 are still only about 20% passive, right? Now, one of the great ironies, of course, is as people do start taking distributions from their 401ks, do start taking distributions from their IRAs, which they're required to do, they often will sell the active managers that they've accumulated over time that they didn't want to sell because, you know, inertia or any other number of things. They'll sell because they now have to for, you know, to fund retirement for distribution reasons, et cetera, required minimum distributions. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with them, but they are the amount that you're required to take out every year. Uh, when they have funds left over, do they go back into the active managers? No, because we all know that active managers underperform and they cost more money, et cetera. And so they in turn are now piling the excess into the passive strategies. And again, it just boils down to the underlying feature of the market, which is the discretionary active manager is being fired and the passive non-discretionary manager is being hired. Yeah. In a, in a, in a record pace. I mean, it, it really is, it really is remarkable. Um, <clears throat> okay. Switch it. I, and I might want to come back, but I just want to make sure I, I get through all the stuff I want to ask you without, I could sit here and do this for five hours. Um, switching over to the inflation topic. Obviously that's a hot one. We've talked about it a lot. Um, and one of the real reasons I wanted to have you, uh, uh to, or have this discussion with you is I kind of find myself as a man stuck in the middle. Um, this has turned into such a hot button issue where, you know, on one, um, you know, on one side of the argument, it's as if, uh, you know, 
excess Fed involvement or extraordinary monetary policy only happened the moment Joe Biden stepped into office. And this is all about reckless spending over the last two years. And then there's the school of thought that says, no, this has nothing to do with that. It's all about supply chain uh, disruptions. Um, You know, I'm one of those people that finds myself somewhere in the middle. Um, You know, I think that, you know, I, I don't really see Joe Biden being any more And I'm sure this will anger some people, but I don't see him being any more, um, you know, (laughs) belligerent with federal spending under his administration than the previous two presidents. Uh, I think this has been something that's been in the making for a long time. And I kind of see it as being caused from both sides of it. You know, I look at the unprecedented stimulus, the supply chain disruptions. Um, you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you are more on the supply chain disruption side of it, correct? So I'm more on the supply chain disruption side of it. Yes. Okay. So why? I I, I don't, I just want to be very, very clear. I do think that the fiscal policy and the stimulus packages that came out absolutely contributed to it. Right. And we did too much stimulus and we did it for too long, but that's not the same. And you know, that's not the same thing as saying that this inflation was as simple as M2 went up, you know, 40% year over year. And therefore we got inflation. Right. Right. So walk us through your take, Mike, when you're looking at this inflation situation, um, walk us through how you're seeing it, how long you expect this to be a problem. Is this going to be something that you think keeps popping up its head? Um, I hate using historical analogs just because it's never the same, right? Um, it can be similar, but it's never the same. Um, you know, kind of like so many people referenced that it did in the 70s. We we had so many false victories against inflation that popped its head up again. Do, do you see that playing out or is this just as just just walk us through the way you're seeing that current situation? OK, so so there's a couple of components there. One, I think your analogy to history is spot on, um, because one of the things that happens the minute you're able to refer to history is you say, well, why don't I just try to change what people did then? Right. The, the knowledge of the situation allows us to behave in a different fashion. Um, and importantly, the improper understanding, right, the misreporting of that knowledge can also influence it. So what transpired is, is fairly straightforward. We did the equivalent of go to a wartime economy in which we shut down most aspects of our domestic economy and switched over production to making tanks, bullets, et cetera, as compared to cars, dishwashers, et cetera. Um, We've seen that type of behavior several times in the past. At the conclusion of every one of those episodes, so for example, World War I, World War II, you see an incredible increase in the price of consumer goods relative to everything else, precisely because people who who have deferred making those consumption choices suddenly want to consume them at the exact same time that they're not really available, right? So in the aftermath of World War I, we experienced a significant inflation, effectively saying the consumption of all sorts of goods and services that we put off as we devoted resources to the military and to the the supply of resources to Europe and the rest of the world, those suddenly, the demand for those came in faster than the supply was able to respond. That caused prices to increase. Within a year, prices had retreated. Same phenomenon occurred in 1945 as the soldiers came home, as it became clear that we had won a victory and that this meant that things were going to return to normal. 
people were able to take savings that had accumulated and use them to make consumption purchases, right? That creates pressure on the supply chains. As the supply chains try to spool back up, they become snarled for any number of reasons, whether it's port congestion, factories being backlogged, a differential ability to add new things. And in the case of the United States, where we've outsourced much of our production to places like China, it became very clear that we were jammed through basically the equivalent of, you know, the Panama Canal, a very narrow entry into the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. It slowly has begun to resolve itself and build various forms of uh, redundancy and robustness by diversifying to East Coast ports now. So, you know, New York is becoming more active than than Los Angeles, for example. That's actually a really interesting development that occurs. Hmm. But historically, that was occurring after a war, and we had a very clear understanding of what was transpiring. And we largely chose to ignore that process and encourage the investment that was required to make that happen. Right. So loans were made available to General Motors, Chrysler, others who had provisioned the war effort to return their factories to car production, for example. Right. An equivalent would be saying, okay, we're reopening the economy. We had a period of time in which there were negative energy prices that basically meant that everybody shut in all their oil production facilities. Oh, and by the way, the oil production facilities have changed significantly. And so we don't have the refineries set up to handle these properly. So we should probably invest in additional refineries, et cetera. Instead of choosing to do that, we've chosen to respond by hiking interest rates. Right, trying to shut off demand on the consumption side to allow the economy to effectively catch up. But the problem is, is that we're simultaneously undergoing a significant restructuring of our supply chains because we're, we want to become less reliant on China. Right? And so what we're actually entering into is an environment and what we need is to invest. We need to drive money into the investment of infrastructure, whether that is energy some of it could be fossil fuels, some of it can be renewables, some of it can be things like nuclear that we've significantly underinvested in. We need to invest in improvements in our infrastructure so that we can domestically pr- produce and transfer many of the goods and services that we'd like to bring back on shore for national security reasons. And instead, what we've done is we've created conditions under which that investment is much, much, much more expensive. Right Now, that means that like we did in the 1970s, when we chose to respond to a unique demographic pressure, which was women and the baby boomers deciding to independently form their own households, right? That placed an outward shift on the aggregate demand curve that meant we needed more of everything. And in the 1970s, we responded in the same way we're doing today. We hiked interest rates. What did that mean? It meant that the investments in the U.S. production system, the investments in U.S. infrastructure failed to occur. And broadly, we destroyed our manufacturing base. We created conditions of significant misery in which home prices rose far more rapidly than most people were able to afford them. We put out of reach of many Americans the ability to buy homes, forcing them to behave in various ways that they didn't want to. And we're doing the same thing now. Right? I think it's exacerbated because the underlying potential growth of the U.S. economy is so much lower. Yeah, I one of the ways. Now, <clears throat> I've had to I've had to kind of temper my thoughts on this topic because I was one of those guys that was beating up on the Fed um, 
really for most of the the aftermath of the financial crisis and i i look back on that you know you 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 learn and you grow over time one of the things that kind of tempered my approach with the fed was sitting back and going okay if you were in their shoes right now what would you do differently um and that kind of that kind of started tempering my look at things um i still i'm under the belief that they stayed on the zero bound for way too long um, but why are they, it, it, because even for me coming from a, a guy that thinks that, that we stayed monetary policy stayed extraordinary for way too long and think that they really distorted markets. Um, even I'm sitting back looking at these interest rate hikes going, th- this feels a little bit like pulling out a 12 gauge shotgun to shoot a house fly, right? Like you're, you're going to get the fly. The question is, is how many holes are you going to blow in the she rock? Um, how, what what do you think explains their approach? Is there something else they're trying to achieve? Because, um, you know, I see that supply chain side of it that you're talking about. I think that there was too much stimulus, but I'm looking at these interest rate hikes and maybe I'm way off, but I feel like if they're maintained and if not, you know, according to the Fed, even increased from here, I feel like that alone is going to blow this economy to pieces. I mean, I just don't think that with the debt loads out there, that you can change borrowing costs that big, that fast. Do you think this is just ineptitude on their side or, or, or what do you think their, what do you think their rationale for this approach is? Um, I think I, so I think it is very hard to know exactly. Um, one is, I think that there is a fun, you know, and I, I've, I've, tried to write and share and speak on, on some of these topics. Um, the first is I do think that there is just a fundamental difference of opinion where the Fed is by and large using a model that says one of the tools that is available to them, one of the primary tools that's available to them to slow an economy is by hiking interest rates. Um, the relationship between consumption and interest rates is what's referred to as the Euler coefficient, E-U-L-E-R. And the theoretical assumption is that higher interest rates leads people to reduce their consumption. There is actually no empirical evidence of that. If mm-hmm. anything, the empirical evidence points in the opposite direction, right? That higher interest rates in many ways are correlated with and potentially causative to increases in consumption as people increasingly say, well, there's um, likely going to be less of this in the future, therefore I should buy it now, right? Now that, that that's an overstatement of it, but the simple reality is, is that nobody goes to the grocery store and says, should I buy ice cream today? What is the Fed's interest rate policy? <laughs> right. Right. Um, But what people do all the time is if you're the CFO or CEO of a major corporation, you turn around and you say, well, what is Fed interest rate policy? Should I defer making the capital investment that I was thinking about making this year to either expand capacity or introduce new, more productive, uh, uh, you know, machinery, uh, a new factory, et cetera. Right. They do that all the time. And so what you end up with is a system in which the underlying features of the economy become increasingly slowed down by the loss of that investment. This is exactly what we're seeing in markets right now, right? We're seeing every corporation basically say, well, we're going to defer making investments. 
Right. right now, that does lead to a demand slowdown because people end up losing their jobs. Smaller businesses will suffer associated with that. The capital spending side of the economy begins to slow down. The housing side of the market will slow down significantly. And all of those have large multipliers in terms of the job implications of it. Um, but fundamentally, it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is we need to actually introduce new capacity. We need to introduce it in geographies that are different than the way the supply chains are currently set up. Yeah. Right. So what we're actually doing is creating conditions under which we're going to have a recession. When we come out of that recession, we'll resolve none of the underlying problems. So perversely, I think, sure, we can get inflation down by destroying the economy in the same way we did in the 73, 74 recessions. But when we come out of it, guess what? We haven't solved the underlying problem. There's still shortages of houses. There's still shortages of cars. There's still shortages of energy investments, et cetera. Well, and that's one of my thoughts, Mike, and you're, you're kind of hitting on it because I've been sitting there, you know, trying to wrap my head around current conditions, I'm sure, like most of us have, and looking at it and going, you know, I, I, I personally find the recession versus no recession debate somewhat comedic just because I think it's all, all but assured. Um, and personally, I think it's already started. I, I could be proven wrong, obviously, it wouldn't be the first time, but I keep looking at it and going, wait a second, we're not addressing any of the underlying issues. So one of my thoughts has been when the Fed eventually does pivot and does cut rates again because of the because of the upcoming recession and we come out of that recession, will we see inflation in earnest at that point? Do you think this lack of investment uh, during this next recession due to Fed policy, ironically, will the Fed ratcheting rates up? cause the next serious wave of inflation that isn't just a product of supply chain disruption? Do you think that's what we're setting the table for? Well, I would just frame it in the context of we're setting up future supply chain disruptions, right? Um, so, so, you know, yes, effectively what we've done is pushed the beach ball below the surface. Right. Right. But it's going to pop back up. Now, the, the only way that it doesn't, and this is, you know, the far worse situation is that we create a system that the Fed unintentionally breaks something in the process, right? And creates a situation in which, um, you know, we move to a much lower node, right? So, you know, when you think about the concepts that typically underpin models of economic thinking, they're what are called... Um, uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, right? And they basically model the world as a series of intersecting supply demand curves that want to move to a stable equilibrium. There's some validity to thinking about the world that way, but it's also important to recognize that you can reach multiple points of equilibrium, right? You can reach an equilibrium in which you slow down spending because nobody has any money. <laughs> and you reach a point of a slowdown in spending because you've created so many alternatives for people to invest their money that they choose to defer consumption because they see the exciting investment opportunities that sit in front of them, right? Those are both situations in which the economy runs much slower. It's just one creates a significant investment boom and the other results in a Great Depression. Do you think that the the former of those two the investment boom do you think that's what we've experienced since the since the financial crisis is that is that fair um i think unfortunately that we did exactly what we should not have done right we created conditions under which capital was easily available to firms to do whatever they wanted 
and we by and large encourage them to invest that in a financialized way, right? So the incentives were very high with a relatively low cost of capital for debt for corporations to use that debt for either horizontal roll-ups, um, uh, you know, PE, private equity acquisitions, yeah. et cetera, stock buybacks, um, all sorts of things that didn't add to the underlying productive capacity of our economy and yet effectively reduce the competitiveness of both our financial markets and our uh, industrial landscape, right? I mean, the degree of consolidation that has occurred in the U.S. economy over the past 25 years, largely since the really past 35 years, since we began to switch antitrust away from the presumption of size, you know, the mere existence of market share created the presumption of monopolistic capabilities. We switched that under what's called the Bork Doctrine in the 1980s to one that required the evidence to be in the form of higher prices, right? So cutting prices was by definition evidence that you did not behave in a monopolistic fashion. Now, ironically, <laughs> the biggest antitrust you know, case of the past 30 years was the Microsoft antitrust that involved them bundling and giving away for free a product, right? right. Um, that destroyed competition. So we know that's actually not an accurate representation of what market power really means, but that's the model that we've used. And it's allowed an extraordinary consolidation of various industries, which has set, ironically, the stage for many corporations to be in a position to hike, it, to hike prices in this environment, right? The, the mere presence of the news that inflation is so high, right, allows companies to say, yeah, we're really sorry, inflation, you know, we need to rise, raise prices. Okay, I, I've soaked up enough of your time, but I, I'd be remiss, considering the events of this week, if I didn't talk to you about the crypto world just a little bit. And I don't want to, I'm not sitting here pumping sunshine, but you have been one of the stalwarts uh, that has taken a lot. I can't even imagine what monitoring your Twitter feed has probably felt like at times with all the crypto bros coming at you. Um, but you have been a stalwart about... Uh, you know, not buying into the crypto craze and, you know, with a, a constant assertion that Bitcoin has no real intrinsic value and things. I, I'm looking at the way things have played out this week. And to me, um, none of it is really surprising. It looks kind of like just the crypto version. I'm probably being over too simplistic, but it kind of looks just like a, a crypto version or a, a um, a crypto version of pump and dump schemes with stocks that you'd be able to you used to be able to see running in the eighties and nineties and especially in the penny stock markets all the time. Um, it kind of looks like, uh, you know, one of those nothing new under the sun things, right? We're just doing it with crypto instead. What, what do you, am I making, is there something more systematic or something more, is this a bigger story than just that it, having to do with crypto and the blowups of these exchanges? Was this purely inevitable um, from your perspective or, or am I missing it? Am I not seeing the picture? How have you interpreted and um, you know processed watching some of the events lately with these with these exchanges collapsing? Um, so again, it, part of it flows down to the point that you know you and I talked about earlier on about the XIV or other products, right? Um, you know, I'm just I, I'm very much immune to the argument that because the price goes up, therefore there's something of value there, right? <laughs> right. Um, 
So, it, it, you know, I wouldn't even argue that it was a, you know, a, a steadfast or a stalwart um, objection to it as much as it was just a recognition that, that there was very little evidence of true utility that was being created in the space and extraordinary evidence of malfeasance and misrepresentation. Right. Um, when you see those combinations, it just it, like it should be very easy to stand back and say, wait a second, why does everybody believe this? Why do people make these statements? And if you've listened to me talk or debate people on the topic, you know, my, my primary technique is is to have people make absurd statements that other people allow to go unchallenged because they don't want to sound stupid. I have absolutely no fear of sounding stupid. And so I'll simply say, well, why do you say that? And, and like, it's unbelievable. They're typically, you know, like shot. Why, why, why would you even question that? Right. Um, you know, it's obviously true, right? It's like a one plus one equals two, you know, um, not to be pedantic, but like, well, one plus one is two is true in a digital system, right? doesn't necessarily have to be true in a binary system, right? So right. there's all sorts of assumptions that exist around those types of things. Move to hexadecimal, it can mean something totally different, right? So I, I would just largely credit like, you know, it's not some moral component. It's just a willingness to, to, to ask what feel like dumb questions to people that often lead to um, uh, the ability to challenge the consensus on this stuff. Um, look, what I think is the most interesting story of what has transpired is that by and large, your analysis of the pump and dump is correct. So when you have firms like FTX issuing a token like the FTT token, what they actually have done is issued penny shares, right? Unregistered shares yeah. in, um, uh, you know, theoretically the equity of FTX, but it has no voting rights, no rights of distribution or anything else, right? right? Um, and the controller of that, by linking themselves with Alameda, they effectively created conditions under which they could manipulate the shares of their own stock so that they could then use that stock to acquire assets in one form or another. The critical error was in giving control of a stock, a chunk of FTT, their token, to a non-aligned individual, um, you know, CZ of Binance. And that created conditions under which he could effectively dump those tokens and force a competitor to acknowledge that their equity was worthless and that equity had underpinned much of the collateral that they offered to the street. And so they've effectively vaporized. Um, that's what appears to have happened here. Uh, it's no different than, you know, what you would have seen in 19th century banking operations where banks, you know, would take deposits secured by quote unquote reserves. Those reserves would be non-existent. Um, and eventually the bank would just shut its doors if bad investments were made. Right. With with no liability for the management team or anybody else, they'd flee for you know California. Um, that's what's playing out here, right? Um, the much more interesting question to me is like, why did we see this emerge? Right. So a lot of people are very focused on the you know incompetence of Sam Bankman-Fried or of the you know how could people have been so stupid sort of thing. It, to me, it's actually increasingly painfully obvious that there was a very concerted public relations campaign that kicked in somewhere around June of 2021 with FTX choosing to go buy the rights of the Miami Heat's NBA stadium, followed by all sorts of glowing public relations you know, pieces that came out talking about the youthful crypto billionaire with his uh, you know, effective altruism framework. And it was wonderful that he wanted to become a trillionaire because he was just going to give it all away, right? <laughs> 
Like it, it's everything down to the fact that the guy couldn't put on a suit that the guy, you know, walked around with, you know, ridiculous hair that he was, you know, ostensibly a healthy vegetarian while he looked like he basically consisted of a diet of Dunkin' Donuts and Cheetos. Um, (laughs) You know, all of these underlying characteristics feel to me like they were very carefully crafted in the same way that we saw Theranos, for example, where she's going to imitate Steve Jobs, and therefore we're not going to question the brilliance of this entrepreneur. It's just the same thing, right? It's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg wearing his bathrobe, right? (laughs) Well, Sam Bankman-Fried wore his pajamas on stage, right? Congratulations. Right. Um, And people fall for it over and over and over again because they're desperate, right? Looking at a system in which they increasingly feel disassociated from the fundamentals and the markets today would certainly give evidence of that. Right, where you just are looking at this going, man, I don't have a clue. I don't understand what's happening. Hopefully some of the, the dynamics that I've shared with people help them to understand why financial markets can be behaving so radically differently than what feels like the underlying fundamentals. Um, but the, the, the bigger story is, is that broadly people are so disaffected and so confused and so unhappy and so fearful of the current conditions. And and we've done everything we can to exacerbate that from a leadership standpoint, from telling people that human beings are a vector of disease and that you should socially distance yourself six feet away from your neighbor and never come into direct contact with them at church or in public settings, you know, for a period of years, what we've done is create a degree of isolationism in which people are are just desperate for leadership. And that can be Sam Bankman fried. That can be Elon Musk. That can be Michael Saylor. That can be Joe Biden. That can be Donald Trump. Right. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate that that's kind of where we sit. You know, the the you know nonsense of libertarianism that we can all independently be sovereign and that we don't need other people and, you know, trust. But, you know, we don't need to trust anyone. We can live in a trustless society. These are just not true statements. We are a social species. We rely on each other. Right. And ultimately, an economy is just people doing favors for other people. Right. And the, the more we think that we can actually separate that into a, you know, non-human system, a system in which algorithms manage it for us, the more we're going to make ourselves increasingly unhappy. I, I think that was such a great observation about people looking for a leader. And, and this is nothing new. I mean, you, you know, go back as far as biblical times, you know, we, we must have a king. Right. Um you, you got to have that. You got to have that leader. And, and if you're not finding the political realm, uh, maybe you'll find it in, uh, you know, a guy that invents a cryptocurrency exchange or something like that. Um, no, that's fascinating insight, Mike. And, and I've sucked up enough of your time. I appreciate you so much for coming on and uh, laying that stuff out for us. And, and just for the listeners, first of all, I, I would strongly f- suggest you follow Mike on Twitter. So it's at Prof Plum, right? Uh, P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M. Yes, uh, 99. No, okay, at Prof Plum 99. And then also, again, guys, this is another person that if you're a home gamer and you're managing or, or, or a corporation, like Mike was saying, they can handle all individuals. This is another, um, you know, I say on the show, Mike, all the time, you know, don't do the standard 60-40 thing. Call us or call somebody else that, that, that is reputable in the business. Do yourself a favor. And I very much look at your firm as being in the in that light 
Um, and so they can, they can look at your firm's uh, offerings. They can call and talk to you guys. But I, I guess the starting point would just be going to the website, right? It's at, at it, what's the website again, Mike? Can you throw the that website up? a little bit confusingly is www.simplify.us, not .com. Okay. Um, and you know the, the 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 clear advice that I give most people, you know, I'm I'm a fan of the tools being available for individuals. Um, there is huge value in the IRA channel, not because it's necessarily the cheapest or, or least uh, expensive way to do something. And certainly the individual can often be much more capable um, than even their financial advisor in terms of understanding these components. Um, but I really do strongly encourage people to talk to a registered investment advisor and to recognize the value that's created in many situations, simply by having effectively a sounding board, right? People who see it over and over and over again. Some are great, some are not great. Um, that unfortunately is part of the game that you have to play is figuring out which one you have. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's the tools to manage this process are out there. They're not easy. Most of the models that people use are deeply, deeply flawed and, and candidly, um, I am no better than anyone else in being able to tell you what the future holds, right? Um, so understand that the models that I use and the approaches that I use could very well be disproven by history as well. So I, I just think it's it's really important for everyone to approach these things with that humility, recognizing the value that can be created there, and also understanding, and this is kind of the last thing that I would end on this diatribe, the market owes you nothing. It does not owe you a retirement. It does not exist for that purpose, Right. The reason that these tools are out there, the reason we have marketplaces like Moroccan suits, et cetera, is to facilitate finding the right price. Right. And so when we pervert and corrupt the systems and turn them into things that we assume there's a utility in which stocks offer an 8% return in perpetuity, because that's what they've done over the last hundred years, we're just doing ourselves a disservice. We're actually destroying the underlying capability of that marketplace to function and do what it's supposed to do, which is to set the marginal cost of capital for companies that are looking to price additional capital. Well, we're also, and, and I think that's probably why your approach resonated with me is because we've been one of these firms pounding on the table for years saying, guys, the 60-40 typical portfolio is flawed. You know, and, and this year, I think, or the last two years, I think has is, is proven that. Um but there, there are, there are so, like you said, there the tools are out there and, and available, and we may not have the perfect solution, but you can look at current. You know, it reminds me of another scene in in uh, in the Big Short where he says you can't spot bubbles, right? We do have that ability. We do have the ability to look at a model and say, wait a second, you know, with the sixty forty portfolio, it was as simple as, well, what happens when interest rates go up? You know, like right. That's probably going to cause uh, a pullback in markets. That's probably going to be disruptive to the underlying economy. And now your equity hedge is getting blown up at the same time your underlying equity portfolio is. And so, just to have another firm out there like you guys that are actually designing these products to to try to insulate people uh, from that risk is a is a great development. And so, uh, tip of the cap, man. Really love your work. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, Hopefully we can get you on again and, and uh, discuss future developments. And um, obviously, as a, use us as, you know, if you guys are launching any new products and you want to have a, an additional voice to get that out, we'd be happy to um, uh, have you on to talk about those things as well. So just thanks again for coming on, Mike, and uh, really appreciate it.
Oh, we appreciate it as well. Thank you very much, sir. You bet. All right, you guys, we got to cut it off there. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And uh, don't forget to tune in next week. We have another great interview coming up. Not going to tell you who it is. You got to got to wait and see. But uh, now have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry to determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.